0: So, <clears throat> do you ever get asked the stupid question? Anybody? And let me give my mom's disclaimer, Betty's disclaimer, Betty Joe Albright's disclaimer to those who are impressionable in the crowd. We never call anyone stupid. Okay? We never do that. That's not nice. Don't ever do that. But I've lived a few decades now and I've come to understand that there are stupid questions. And in my line of work, I get a lot of them. Don't mind them. uh, Except maybe for some people who should know better. Um, But I looked the word up. Stupid. Now, we don't call anyone stupid. Ever. That's wrong. But I looked up the definition. Having or showing a great lack of of intelligence, or common sense. Synonyms are unwise, thoughtless, rash, reckless, foolish, obtuse. So in talking to unbelievers over the years, um, I've encountered this question somewhat regularly. I bet you have too. Why doesn't God just openly reveal Himself? Have you heard this question? I get this. Why doesn't God just openly reveal Himself? Well, uh, why does that question reveal a great lack of intelligence and common sense? Um, Well, we know from the Bible, don't we? Romans chapter 1. God has revealed Himself in the most profound and explicit way. In the created order. Any rational person has to come to an infinite mind. There's no other rational, logical explanation for the glory that is the cosmos. And the one who designed us, he tells us in Romans 1 that he put that knowledge in us. This is why you never can meet an atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. They may claim to be an atheist, but they're not an atheist. They know God's there. You can't even be agnostic. You know it. He says it. If you know Romans 1, you understand. You understand, the Bible reveals it's never that men don't know, it's that men do know. Okay? You need to understand this. It's not that men don't know. Men do know. They just refuse to bow their knee to the God who is. As one of my favorite theologians uh, is famous for saying, you know, a lot of people in the church, they think they love God. Uh, and they actually read their Bible, and they don't like Him at all. And there's, there's, a, there's a powerful truth there, that we must know and love the God who is. So let me just share Romans 1 with you, 19 verse, uh, verses 19-20, to just very quickly. I just want you to hear what God says you already know, what the whole world knows. That which is known about me, God says, is evident within them. I put it in them, is what he's saying. I put it in their heart, I put it in their conscience, I put it in their mind. Okay? For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without what? Excuse. There'll be no excuses on the last day. There'll not be one. You know. You know. And every man out there knows. He has clearly revealed Himself without in the created order and within in your own conscience, heart, soul, and mind. God says, I am clearly seen. Don't. Ask stupid questions. I've made myself clearly seen. Now, you know, you guys know I love creation and I get jazzed about it. And Cutting-edge science is revealing that he is clearly seen in modern genetics, microbiology, neurology, cosmology, astronomy, and physics and astrophysics. I could go on and on and on, but you understand the point. Uh, it has become evident to rational and logical scientists, as they've gotten down to the cellular level, that infinite mind has to be there. There's no other excuse. There's no other explanation. Infinite mind must be there. And there's a really good book that came out on this last year that you might want to take a look at. Um, So God has revealed Himself inherently. He wired us this way. He's revealed Himself empirically in the created order. He's revealed Himself historically in the Bible. He's revealed Himself physically in the person of Jesus Christ. As John 1.18 says, Jesus has explained God. Jesus has explained Him. Which makes my point, doesn't it about that question that lacks intelligence and common sense why doesn't god just clearly reveal himself well by any reasonable standard he has by any reasonable standard he has if you refuse to receive the evidence that's on you it's not on god okay if some member of your family or your friends or your colleagues if they refuse to receive the evidence it's not Yeah, it's not on God, it's on them. God says, no excuse. No excuse. I wired you this way. I would say to ignore the mountain of evidence um, that God has accumulated for us does in fact show a great lack of intelligence and common sense. As I've already referenced, shockingly God has come in the flesh Yes, it's shocking, it's unwarranted, it's unexpected. Who would have ever asked God to come in the flesh, bleed out to save me? I mean, I would have never thought of it. But He's done it. He's come in the flesh. His coming and His death are the most well-known and documented events in antiquity. Indeed, all of history uh, pivots around Jesus Christ. B, C, A, D—at least in the West. So, if you deny all the evidence, I would say to you that you have your eyes firmly closed. And uh, a phrase I picked up from an old teacher—I love it. It's not uncommon, but willful ignorance. It's willful ignorance. People who don't want to face the truth. In John 17.1, we just got through with John 17, maybe the loftiest chapter in all of the Bible, Jesus praying to the Father. Beautiful, amazing, and I think I said breathtaking 12 times last time in the sermon, and it is. It, it is. Jesus prayed to His Father. His hour has come. That unbelievably awful and unbelievably beautiful hour where God incarnate will sacrifice Himself for His people. Yeah, it looks wrong. It sounds wrong. It feels wrong. It is wrong. But He does it. You know? He does it. Voluntarily, He does it. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us, out of joy He goes to the cross to save you. <laughs> the Bible constantly blows my mind. I love what John Piper says. If the, if the Bible's not blowing your mind, you don't understand it. God died for you. Yeah, that's, that's doctrine. That's, that's, I get that. That's, that's orthodoxy. I get No, it's got to rock your world, man. Or you're not understanding it. You're not understanding it. So I'm going to do something a little different tonight. You know, I usually take a text and I go verse by verse. Um, I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm going to take the first few verses of uh, chapter 18. You can turn there if you like, John 18, and um, uh, talk about those specifically. But then I'm going to do an overview of the balance of the chapter, and I'm going to bring in some of the other gospels so we can kind of look at things in a stereo kind of way. Uh, the last night Jesus walked the earth um, before he is crucified because we have a big Sunday coming up next week, and uh, so we're going to look at at the night before and all the trials so we have a better understanding of all that Jesus went through. I, I, I realize that many many professing Christians don't understand. All that Jesus went through that last evening. Three religious trials and three civil trials. So, this is a a narrative part of Scripture and it lends itself to this kind of overview. So this is what we'll do tonight. I I do want to begin John 18, the first first two verses there. Jesus closes out His prayer to His Father and He went with His disciples uh, over the Kidron uh, Valley where there is a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So a little historical footnote, there are probably two million uh, pilgrims in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands. In fact, this is documented historically. Uh, one, One year, around the time that Jesus walked the earth, a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered. A quarter of a million. And the blood would, would, <clears throat> would flow down off the altar, down, down a channel, and into the Kidron Valley and down in that stream. This is the stream Jesus is walking over, okay? <laughs> the last Passover. This will be the last official, meaningful Passover. The, the, the Lamb of God's blood would be shed for His people. So he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane it was a favorite place of Jesus and his disciples. And guess who else knew it? Judas knew it. So the que- it begs the question why does he go there if he knows Judas is there and he knows Judas or, or Judas knows the place and Judas is going to betray him? Why does he go there? Why? You know. Why does he go there? This is why he came. He came to die. He came to die. That's why He goes there. He came for you and He came for me. Right? (laughs) He's not hiding behind a tree. He's not trying to make an escape. He's not trying to wear a disguise. He's courageously facing what has been ordained for Him, which is to save a people for the glory of God by the shedding of His own blood. uh, Judas knew the place. and He knew that Judas would come. And Jesus was ready. He was making it easy for Judas to earn those 30 pieces of silver. You guys remember John 12, 27. Jesus says, For this purpose I have come to this hour. It's why He was in that manger in Bethlehem. So how many times do we see it in the Gospels? Ten times. The Jewish religious leaders tried to capture Jesus, but they couldn't do it. But now, they'll get Him. Why? It's His hour. He's giving Himself up. Right? He's giving Himself up. man. When you just look at this first part of John 18, you realize, really the whole thing. (laughs) Right? Jesus still has all the power he 's still in charge now, these little men with the ropes and the torches and these little guys dressed up in their robes, they think they 're in charge. Pilate thinks he 's in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge he 's come to save a people, and he 's going to do it he 's going to do it by the as we saw these great words from Acts chapter two by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 3, Judas then, having received a Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. We, You know, a Roman cohort can be any number of soldiers. You do the math. You realize there are people in addition to the cohort. There's probably a 750 to 1,000 people armed to the teeth to go pick up one Galilean carpenter. Now, you've got to do the math, Right? they're scared of this guy. <laughs> they know he's powerful. And we're going to see it in we're going to see his power here in just a few minutes. So, they go to pick Jesus up verse 4. Jesus therefore knowing all things, he's omniscient. He knows what's coming on him. That's what the text says. All that was coming upon him, he went forth and he said to them, "Whom do you seek?" Now, he is the omniscient God. He knows what's about to happen. In fact, Ephesians 1.11, he, he works all things after the counsel of His will. He's known it from an eternity past. And He asks the arresting mob, whom do you seek? So His omniscience magnifies His courage. He knows what this is about. He knows who they want. And He steps, I love this, He steps between the wolves and His sheep. This is what He does. He steps out and He protects the sheep. This is what the Good Shepherd always does. He is a courageous God. You guys know Exodus 15.3. I love it. The Lord is a warrior. Right? The Lord is a warrior. He fights for His people. He delivers His people. This is never in question. This is never in doubt. He always does it. He always will do it. He will deliver His people. Verse 5 and 6. They answered Him, we're here for Jesus of Nazareth. And He said to them, I am. That's the, that's the text. Uh, some of your translations will have the word He in there. That's an addition. Jesus says I am. What does that mean? Yeah. He's God. You've come to pick up God. You think you got enough guys? <laughs> you know, in one of the Gospels, Jesus says, if I asked my Father, He would send. I think I wrote it in the margin. He would send 12 legions of angels. 60,000 angels. He doesn't need any angels. We're going to see it in a minute. (laughs) He's got all the power. He's got all the power. Jesus says, I am. What happens? They drew back and they fell to the ground. Verse 6. He just said His name. And the power of that name coming off the lips of God incarnate, He knocked thousand seven hundred fifty to 1,000 men down like bowling pins. Okay? He just knocked them down. What's He saying to His men and what's He saying to you and me? I'm in charge. Don't forget, I'm in charge. Whatever happens in the next 24 hours, I'm in charge. Even when you see me... Uh, Buried, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. It's the thing He wants us to know and understand. So these guys here in verse 6, they're not too bright. They still think they're in charge. They think they're going to arrest I Am. These little men with their little swords and their little clubs, they think they're going to take Jesus by force. I want you to understand, you already know, this is not really the arrest of Jesus. This is the voluntary surrender of Jesus Christ to His murderers. John 10, you know the famous verse, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. Verses 7 and 9, you see that Jesus asks a second time whom they are seeking He's getting them to say what? Jesus of Nazareth. He's getting them to say they have no warrant to pick up His eleven guys. He's getting them to say it again. They have no warrant to pick up the eleven guys. He's protecting His men. It's just a function of the Good Shepherd. It's who He is and it's what He does. He's protecting His men. And then we see it there, don't we, again? um, In verse 9. this is the tenth time in the Gospel of John, as we talked about repeatedly in John 17, that Jesus refers to His men as, as those whom the Father has given Him. Yeah, the Ephesians 1, guys, we've been talking about, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, the love gift from the Father to the Son. He will not lose one. This is the fifth time He has said this in the Gospel of of John, I, uh, I want to make the point again. Our eternal security rests completely in the sovereign, omnipotent power, purpose, plan, and work of God. He will save His people to the uttermost, and we will persevere because He will persevere. Don't let some knucklehead on the internet tell you you can lose your salvation. He's clueless, he doesn't understand how to rightly divide the word. If you're His, you're His forever. And we understand people leave the church. Well, what that's, what's that about? That's about people who were never converted in the first place. They went out of us because they were not of us. Right? They went out from us because they were not of us. So we understand what that is about. So as we briefly look at the, the trials, these, this travesty that occurred in condemning Jesus to death, we will see that the charges are bogus, the evidence is non existent, the witnesses are a joke, the hearings are a pretense and illegal, and those judging him are corrupt. As we make our way through the events leading to the cross, I want you to note this is, this is the important lesson tonight, okay? There are several of them, but this is one I really want you to, to try to understand. Jesus is not the one on trial, okay? He's not on trial. You and I are on trial. Pilate's on trial. The Sanhedrin's on trial. Annas is on trial. Caiaphas is on trial. That's who's on trial. All right. Jesus is never legitimately on trial. The first trial. John 18, verses 13 and 14. You can see there. After they had arrested him, they took him to Annas. Now, Caiaphas is the high priest. Why do they go to Annas? Because Annas is the the guy. He's the puppet master. He controls Caiaphas. And uh, he really should have been uh, high priest, but the Romans didn't like a high priest serving for uh, a lifetime, so they kept changing the role. They kept changing the seat. But Annas had all the power. And by the way, Annas... Uh, owned the concessions of the temple. Oh, can you think why he might have an axe to grind with Jesus Christ? Right? He sold the, the, the animals for sacrifice at an exorbitant price and the money changers were illegal. He had the, 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 the exchange. He exchanged money. You had to pay the temple tax with, with Judean money. I mean, the guy was making out like a bandit. Can you imagine why he might have an axe to grind? Yeah, Jesus cleaned out the temple a couple of different times with a whip. So the subplot here tonight that we need to be mindful of, I know you're aware of, is Peter. Uh, verses 15 and 18 tell us that Peter and another disciple, obviously this is John, have followed Jesus to the temple. We see in verse 17, Peter denies Jesus the first time as he entered into the temple courtyard. And we'll come back to Peter in a few minutes. John 18:19 to 23 we see the exchange between Annas and Jesus Christ. Annas has asked an illegal question. A man, a Jew, cannot incriminate himself. This is an illegal question. This is the point Jesus makes here, right? He cannot incriminate himself. The trial going on is illegal, and this question is illegal. Annas should not be asking him. He should be asking the witnesses. Oh wait, there aren't any! There aren't any witnesses! The verdict has already been decided. He's guilty. He's been guilty for a year now or longer. They've been trying to kill Him for sure ever since He raised Lazarus. Which was just some some weeks ago. But they've been after Him for a long time. Verse 23 One of uh, Annas' underlings strikes Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, verse 23, If I've spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Annas goes ahead and sends Jesus over to Caiaphas, verses 24-27. to And then we see Peter's second and third denial of Jesus. We talked a little bit about this back in John 13. You may remember as Jesus talked about the cross in John 13 and Luke 22. He told Peter, and we touched on this last week and the week before, that Satan had demanded to sift him like wheat. Now, Peter had boasted. All the disciples had boasted. But Peter was out front. He had boasted that he would die for Christ. I will die for you. <laughs> you know, Peter's in his own strength, right? Well, we're all giants in our own strength if there's no immediate danger. We're all Yeah, we're all just incredibly brave when there's no immediate danger. Peter had boasted, Peter loves Jesus. He really loves Jesus. But he can't go with Jesus in his own strength. Now, if you're a real Christian, you get that. You can't do one thing of eternal consequence apart from the enabling of God and the Spirit of God Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times, and Peter couldn't believe it. He was so full of self-confidence, he couldn't believe that could ever possibly happen. Those of you who are Christians and you've lived very long, you understand it can happen. It can happen as you wander off in your own strength and don't wait upon the Lord Matthew 26, 72-74 tells us that Peter denied knowing Christ with an oath and with cursing. And as the religious leaders moved Jesus from the house of Annas to the house of Caiaphas through the temple courtyard, Luke 22 tells us that Peter was in the middle of the third denial and a cock was crowing. Luke twenty two sixty one, 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord Regarding his denial, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now again, every true believer here knows that feeling. If you're just a churchgoer, you don't understand it. Like, what? I'm not going to weep. <laughs> he winks at my sin, it doesn't matter. Hey, I did the prayer. I did the baptism. Don't worry about it. I'm okay. Every true believer in here understands what it's like. And I do want to say, and you guys know this, this is not a look of condemnation, but a look of love. And it broke Peter's heart. And if you're a Christian, you know what that feels like. But Jesus... You know, you know John 21. I get to preach it in another week or two, John 21. Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And what was Peter's final answer? You know I love you. (laughs) This is what I I love. This he knows when I'm acting like a punk, he knows I love him, right? So, Jesus knows that Peter loves him, he knows that Jim loves him. And here's my here's my hope and here's my assurance. Jesus is praying for me. He's praying for Peter. Romans 8:34, we've touched on that in the last few weeks. So they send him over to Caiaphas. It's not recorded in John's Gospel. It's recorded in Mark 14, 53-64. Mark tells us that the chief priests kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they were not finding any. Mark's Gospel tells us that the testimony was false and inconsistent. Oops, they planned a trial without any credible witnesses, but again, it doesn't matter because the verdict is already in. They're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. This is murder. Premeditated murder. It's why Jesus called these religious men sons of Satan. He said, woe unto me! Woe unto you! You're sons of the devil. Finally, Caiaphas seeks to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Again, illegal question. The text says Jesus kept silent and made no answer. Then Caiaphas asked Him, Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming uh, with the clouds of heaven. Verse 62. And Caiaphas tore his clothes again unlawful. And they pronounced Him guilty of blasphemy and sentenced Jesus to death. Now this would have been blasphemy except it was true. Except it was true. Not only was it true, he proved it was true. Just a week or so ago, he'd called a man who'd been dead four days out of the tomb. Who can do that? Nobody but God can do that. He is God, he's proved he's God. But you remember the reaction of the chief priests to Lazarus coming out of the tomb, right? You remember, right? <laughs> They wanted to kill Christ. It wasn't... Hey, wait a minute. There's a dead man walking around. You know, they, they couldn't deny it. He was walking around. It was very embarrassing for the religious guys who wanted to kill God. It was very inconvenient. Actually, John eleven fifty three. 53, from that day on, they planned to kill Jesus once He had raised Lazarus. Now, this is religion for you. This is what religion does. Okay? This is why I'm always down on religion. Religion is man-made. Religion is man's man's attempt to reach up to God. It's worthless. It's worthless in every conceivable manifestation. Only Christianity is God reaching down to save a people. Only Christianity is valid in any ultimate sense. And here's what I want to say again. Jesus is not on trial. The men who are putting Jesus on trial are on trial. And they are being found guilty. This is true of all humanity. When confronted with the evidence of Jesus, we must receive Him, or by default we have rejected Him. There's no middle place. You can't Like, kind of have some sense of, well, I think he's God and think you're okay. You're not okay. You're either with him or you're against him. That's what he said. You either love him or you don't. If you're lukewarm, he'll vomit you out of his mouth. You don't belong in his church. If you're lukewarm, you don't belong in his church. Jesus' life, His words, His deeds, His death, and His resurrection prove that He was who He said He was. The evidence is overwhelming. But men and women today are still rejecting God. Are there, are you know, what's the word? I, I guess I'll just use the word lukewarm toward God. Their, their affections are, you know, not really stirred at all. They find no beauty in Him. They don't treasure Him. They don't adore Him. They don't worship Him with their life and their resources. They don't do it. Lukewarm Christianity taking billions to hell. So the evidence is compelling. The evidence is compelling, but millions still will not humble themselves and subject themselves to God. It's like the psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, I will have no God over me. I may have some, you know, religious caricature, but I'm not going to submit to any God. I'm my own God. I'll do whatever I want to do. <coughs> yeah, go ahead. Do whatever you want to do. You'll stand before him soon and give an account so they send him over to the sanhedrin from caiaphas to the sanhedrin the third religious trial um, <clears throat> it's not recorded in john john's gospel either i'm looking at it from at, in luke 22 and don't try to follow me all over the place listen if you want my notes if you want this uh, chronology uh, i'll send you my notes um So this hearing is before the full council of religious leaders. It's called the Sanhedrin. They ask him if he is the Son of God. Jesus says, yes, I am. And they pronounced him guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. But as you know, Rome held the power of capital punishment. They could not put a man to death. The Jewish courts could not carry out a sentence like this, so they had to send him to, you know, Pilate, which begins... The civil trials. So they send him to the Roman governor, Pilate. Back in John 18.28, we see the stupidity and hypocrisy of these religious men. They're conspiring to commit murder against one who claims to be Messiah, but they can't go into Pilate's quarters because they'll be defiled. Again, religion is a joke. It's an evil joke. It's a demonic joke. This is what religious men do. They'll be defiled. They can't go into a Gentile's home. <laughs> but let's kill this guy. He's bad for business. Let's kill him. Pilate asks Jesus if he's king. John 18.33 What has he done? Jesus says, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Everyone who hears, everyone of the truth hears my voice. And 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 Pilate finds out that he's a Galilean. Oh, so he sends him to Herod, who happens to be in Jerusalem. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23, we see this exchange. This is the second trial, civil trial of Jesus. Herod is really jazzed about seeing Jesus. He wants him to do a miracle for him. He wants to see him perform. <laughs> yeah, you see that a lot as a pastor. People want God to perform. Well, why doesn't God perform? I I want Him to perform for me. He's not performing adequately for me. Shame on you. God doesn't perform. God does His will in the lives of His people. He does not perform. Shame on you if you have that concept of God in your head. Repent. Repent and come to the biblical God. So Herod wanted to see you know, a miracle. They questioned Jesus at length. But Jesus did not speak one word to this wicked man. Herod's men mocked him and they clothed him in a gorgeous robe and they sent him back to Pilate. This will be Pilate's second time, Jesus' last uh, civil trial, his sixth overall, his last one. And God was gracious to Pilate. Now I want you to put yourself in Pilate's shoes here. He was gracious to Pilate by giving him another chance to meet Jesus face to face. This is grace. God has even given Pilate's wife a dream to warn him about not finding against this faultless man. God is giving Pilate... All the ammunition and evidence he can give him, he's, he's, he's trying to help Pilate to, you know, make the right decision. Pilate's own conscience is convicted that Jesus is innocent. Luke 23, 14 and 15. Jesus tried to, pardon me, Pilate tried to release Jesus three times. He could find no fault in him. He tried every possible way and here's the thing I see. He tried every possible way to play the middle. I don't want to decide against Jesus but I can't afford to decide for Jesus. I'm going to try to stand in the middle. That's the place of condemnation, beloved. That's the place of sure condemnation. Pilate is trying to stand in the middle. I don't want to find against him but I cannot afford to find for him. Why can he not afford to find for him? Because the Pharisees said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, for he has claimed to be a king. They appealed to his job security, (laughs) right? His job security. We'll make sure you lose your job if you don't play ball with us, right? That's what they're saying. And so, yeah, he was caught up in the job security and the comfort, the ease, the power. He was caught up in the world thing. And he could not find a way clear in his own thinking to decide for Jesus. Pilate is the problem of most of humanity. They fear men more than they fear God. And they love their earthly comforts and security more than they love God. Pilate knew he should have decided for Jesus. But he washed his hands. He let a guilty man be condemned and murdered. That's what he did. He chose the good opinion of society and his boss over Jesus Christ, just like millions today. Pilate is the perfect example of the Romans' one man he suppressed the truth that was welling up in him he pushed it down this is what every not this is what every unbeliever does they push it down so listen you don't have to convince anybody they already know god is god they know it they can disclaim that but they already know it you don't have to convince anybody just keep sh- just keep giving them the truth just keep giving them truth keep pr- keep loving them keep praying for them keep giving them the truth <clears throat> that's our job You can't convert anybody, and nor can I. So I wanted to try to accomplish two things tonight. First, I want you to be knowledgeable regarding all the trials that Jesus faced that evening before He actually went to the cross, which we'll talk about next week. Because again, I don't think a lot of Christians realize He had six trials. Secondly, I want you to understand that Jesus was never on trial. You are. And I am. And Pilate is. And Annas is. And Caiaphas is. And the Sanhedrin is. Every man, woman, boy and girl who's ever drawn a breath is on trial when it comes to Christ. It's just the truth, beloved. He's not. You are. And I am. This is what it will come down to in the courtroom of God have you decided for jesus or against him so i say in love if you do not proactively decide for jesus you have in fact decided against him you say well i don't have any antip- antipathy uh, toward him i i i don't deny you know that maybe he's god i i you know forget about it <laughs> you know? god's not interested in it he's not interested in that He's interested in you loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what He's interested in. And He's made that possible through the finished work of Jesus. It was not possible till He came. He's made it possible for the likes of you and me to come into relationship with the living God. So I implore you, do not be like Pilate. Do not suppress the truth of God within your heart. Do not let the things and pressures of this world keep you from your Savior. So, in closing, I often like to say that Jesus is the answer to every serious question you have. Turns out, He's even the answer to some stupid questions. For indeed, why doesn't God openly reveal Himself? He has. He has. <coughs> the evidence is overwhelming. No thinking person can deny it. God says, if you stand before Him on the last day without the blood of Jesus on you, God will say to you, you have no excuse. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7. But we were religious. We did religious stuff. And we cast out demons. And Jesus will say, I don't know you. I never had a relationship with you. It's what we saw in John 17, 3. This is what biblical Christianity is. It's always relational. Always relational. Always relational. If it's not relational, it's not biblical Christianity. It's pseudo-Christianity. So, I say to you, (laughs) don't be like Pilate. Don't be like Pilate. It's a good time to examine your heart. We're coming up on Resurrection Sunday next week. Good time to examine your heart. Exactly where are you with Christ? Is the relationship going on? Is it real? Is it powerful? Is it life-changing? It's a good time to think about these things. It's always a good time to think about them. But, you know, when we're right in the middle of our Savior giving Himself away for us, it's just a great time to re-examine as Paul told the Corinthians. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Let's pray together. Lord, this is just stunning. We realize You're in charge. You hold all the power and You're letting these wicked men play with You. Lord, You're doing that that You might honor Your Father principally and that You might save us. We are in awe. And if we're not in awe, I think we have serious problems. I know we have serious problems. So, Lord, I pray your Spirit would convict each one of us. That we would decide right here, right now, that we are going to go deeper with you. If we've simply been churchgoers, Lord, we repent. What an insult! What an insult to you. So Lord, come, convict and save. Come, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.